you've entered the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. You know, David, what makes us very different from other paranormal talk shows, and that's the fact that we have opinions and we're not afraid to express them. Absolutely, Gene. It seems like every radio show that I listen to that is delving into the topic of paranormal issues, everybody seems to want to be completely objective and to simply want to facilitate the conversation. These radio show hosts seem to not have any thoughts about these topics, and even worse than that, they don't do any research about the actual material that they cover and the guests that they have on. In the last couple of weeks, I've been on a radio show where I had to defend the good name of the Paracast. I had to listen to our buddy Jeff Ritzman defend his stature to our, our nemesis, who shall not be named, and to a radio show host who seemed to not have any idea of the actual topic that was being discussed. You and I started this show. Uh, and here we are at the end of our first year. We started this show with the idea that we wanted to talk about this topic because it was near and dear to us. I know for, from my own point of view, I wanted to do this because I've experienced odd things in my life. When you have these experiences, they change who you are. There's no question about that. They make you evolve in a sense. And then once you take that evolutionary step, now you have to ask questions. You want to understand these experiences and what meaning they have. So I thought when you and I started talking about this, this would be a great way for me to speak to other people who have had these experiences, to speak to people who have researched this stuff, because you and I, I mean, I've never said on this show that I'm a researcher of UFOs, that I'm a researcher of the paranormal. It's funny. I, recently, uh, UFO Magazine gave me a column uh, called The Critical Eye, where I'm going to put my image processing tasks to work in trying to evaluate and understand the validity, credibility of photographic evidence presented in the realm of UFOs. And at the end of it, in my bio, it says that I'm you know, co-host of the Paracast, an image processing expert, and a lifelong student of all things paranormal. And that's really the way I see myself. I'm learning stuff about this topic really so I can understand my own experiences. And that is what's motivated me to do this show with you. It's a passion to understand, and I don't see that in other radio show hosts in this particular genre. It's very unfortunate. I think a lot of the people who participate in this kind of show, they try to be straight-ahead radio announcers. Mm -hmm. And in one case, and I won't mention the name, in one particular case, the person is a bad radio announcer, to be blunt about <laughs> it. They have a rather boring delivery, a rather halting way of speaking, and maybe they are good reading copy, but not good speaking extemporaneously. The other person is a decent radio announcer, but they both suffer from the same problem. They may have opinions, but they do not express them. Even worse, when they get into a situation where there's an active debate between two guests, or more than two guests, they have no idea how to moderate. So if one guest tries to step over the other and basically change the subject, and we know what we're getting at here, tries to change the subject, not answer the questions, he doesn't know or present enough knowledge to say, wait a minute, you're not answering the question, and we want to keep this thing organized. Would you please answer the question and stop talking about stuff that is not relevant right now? If we have time later, we can maybe bring it up. It doesn't happen. 
It doesn't it's, happen. Well, I've really come to believe that this is a byproduct of what seems to be a trend of polarization at all levels of debate and interaction in our society. You know, people take these emotional, extremely polarized views about, well, pick the topic, politics, religion, freedom of speech, Internet security and freedom of speech. Uh, I mean, take your take your pick, man. Any one of these. The topics. Mac versus Windows. The Mac versus Windows. I mean, <laughs> sure. everything is so polarized. And, and and if you try to take a reasonable, rational middle position, then you find that essentially you end up battling both sides of the polarized field, and it's very frustrating because what ends up happening is that. People are distracted from the real issues, and instead they get taken on these goose hunts, these these witch hunts that have nothing to do with the real topics at hand. I mean, my God, if you look at the, the mainstream media and the stuff that gets reported in the news, you get a view of the world that has nothing to do with the core issues that are really going on. And especially, you know, if you take into account, like, American society, we are too damn insular. People stay at home. They watch their three little channels, you know, like the people that watch the Fox News Network, fair and balanced. Come on, you know, they're living in a delusion, and when they actually step out into the real world, when they go to the rest of the world, what they find out is that's a very different situation. I mean, the dichotomy between what our government, our United States government tells us about what's going on in the Middle East, and the reality of what's happening there, they're so different that if you in any way get onto the World Wide Web and start to look at the global media and you start to read what other countries and other peoples think about us, it's, it's, it's a shocking eye-opener. And at this point in the <laughs> evolution of the human species, we have to stop being insular and insulated. We have to take the step, and it's a, it's a difficult step, Gene. We have to take the step forward into being global citizens and not just talk the talk. We have to walk the walk. And the same thing goes in the discussion of the paranormal. At this point, you know, Jeff Ritzman has said to me, and he said publicly, that he'd like to know the truth no matter what it is. If it's if it ends up being that every UFO encounter and every abduction encounter is some covert government operation and it doesn't involve extraterrestrials, well, that's fine. Let's go at that. Let's have, if that's the truth, then let's study that truth. The point is that I think on the Paracast what we try to do is to consider all of the evidence and to try to figure out what has validity and what doesn't. We're not protecting some point of view like, I believe, Gene, that the aliens are from Jupiter and they have to be from Jupiter. And if the evidence doesn't point to that, well, then, my God, the evidence is flawed. It's like, no, 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 that's taking out a position and defending it. We're not defending any position. I like to think that our only policy is if you make a claim about something, you have to provide some substantial amount of information to back that claim up, and it has to be sincere, and it has to be as objective as possible, but it's difficult because this is a subjective topic, as we both know. Right, and also it's hard to be completely objective about the best you can do sometimes is to try to be fair, and we certainly are trying mm -hmm. to be fair to opposing viewpoints. We'd like to hear from you. If you want to contact Gene and David, send your messages to news at com. That's news at com. 
And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the Paracast and visit our spirited discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them you heard their ad on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have some great guests coming up later that we'll let you know about. But right now, we want to talk about the things that upset us. Now, there is one topic. Not just that upset us. I mean, all okay, right. Well, ahead. things that make us happy too. But let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about a number of things. And I think you and I were mentioning this before we got on the air. There is one particular topic that has gotten far, far too much discussion these days. We've had one of our most active threads on the PowerCast discussion mm-hmm. forums. They're still talking about it on certain radio shows. We've mentioned it. And I think we have to decide here and now on the air to swear off any further discussion of the Billy Meyer case. Forget about... Amen. Forget about, okay, amen, brother, but forget about that dude who claims to be their official spokesperson in the USA. That's another case, okay? That's almost like another story dealing with that person. But just strictly considering Billy Meyer, 25 years ago, this was exposed as a hoax. Nothing that has happened in the past 25 years has done anything but to confirm that impression. If there's any evidence at all that we're wrong about this, and we're not talking about the phony evidence about quoting experts who said things they never really said to try to hoodwink experts into analyzing photos on the pretext that they were actually coming there to look at new photo processing equipment. That's kind of the stories we're getting. If there's any evidence... We're willing to look at it, and certainly David, as a world-class expert in digital imaging, would be happy to see it. Otherwise, that's it, folks. No more Billy Meyer on the show. If you obviously want to discuss the subject in our discussion forums, within limits, it's fine with us. But if it gets really out of hand, like it got on one particular forum thread, we'll just lock it and forget about it. Yeah, I absolutely, positively concur with that, Gene. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that There is so much interesting material to talk about. We could spend days talking about the photographs on ufoevidence.org. And, you know, I've, (laughs) I've reached the point where there are so many fantastic photographs to evaluate, to look at, to study. And uh, in this column I have in UFO Magazine, The Critical Eye, this is exactly what I'm going to be doing um, to the, the readership of that magazine. And, of course, I will post the, uh, some of this material up on our forums as well, taking a look at specific images, taking a look at specific cases that I really do find to be incredibly compelling. And, and I'll give you an example of these. When we talk about really compelling photographs, uh, there is a specific episode that happened in a place called Canaima, Venezuela, in January of 1990. Uh, and there was a photograph taken at that encounter of a UFO, of a spaceship, or some kind of a ship, projecting a beam down onto the ground. This photograph, which I will link to from the Paracast forums, 
to me, it's one of the most credible looking photos I've ever seen of a UFO. It is, in many ways, it's an absolute treasure of a photograph in that you look at this and it, we're back to this issue for me of visual believability where there are certain photographs like the Meyer stuff that you look at and you say, at a core level, oh, well, that's just fake. Your eye immediately sees the problems in scale, in perspective, in atmospheric haze, in density, in lighting. Your eyes knows how to look at a certain image and know it's fake. This is one of the things that's happened as far as people going to movies that have incredible production values, that have tremendous amounts of visual effects. Your eye can tell at this point what's real and what's not, truly. In looking at this Canaima Venezuela photograph, this thing is absolutely convincing. I'm positive that this thing is a legitimate photograph. And what's really fascinating about it is that it fits the description when you look at it. It looks like the images of UFOs and the reports of UFOs that people encountered, a number of people encountered in Gulf Breeze, Florida. It looks exactly like these things. The fact that there's this image that I find very credible which shows a craft that looks exactly like some very credible images out of Gulf Breeze, Florida, of almost the exact same thing. Well, this now presents a set of cases that corroborate one another. That, combined with the compelling visual reality of these photos, leads me to believe that these are legitimate, structured, large objects in the sky. And... It's important to state that I can't tell you if they're interdimensional craft, if they're interplanetary craft. I can't even tell you whether they're human-created or not. They don't look like anything we have. They don't look like anything I've ever seen described as human technology. So from that point of view, we have an interesting case to study. And I think that there are a lot of cases like this gene where there are there's a good amount of evidence that leads me to believe that we have legitimate UFOs. UFO, let's remember that that is an unidentified flying object. We assign no other explanation or no other information in terms of, are, as I said, are they aliens? Do they come from our future? Do they come from another dimension? We don't know those things. What we and do know if is, you tell us they come from Zeta Reticuli, I think we question it. Well, I, we can entertain that possibility. I don't, I, don't, sure. I don't think you can strike that right out. We can entertain that possibility. We can talk about that possibility. As I said to you, Gene, we should be open to any potential explanation for something that seems to fit what we know, but also understanding that there are things that we don't know. I'm not a UFO researcher. I'd probably sooner call you a UFO researcher because you were doing real work in this field long before... I was doing any, well, I, I'm still not doing real work in this field. I'm an interested individual who has had experiences, who uh, is looking for some answers. Does that make me a researcher? I, I don't know that I'd call myself one. I'm a student of this material. Hey, we have another student of this material who has investigated some very interesting cases coming up in just a moment on the Paracast. And maybe you can tell us about the article that mentions him in the December issue of UFO magazine. Well, it's, um, it's, a, it's a feature article about uh, Dr. Lear. What's really cool about it is that it has some fascinating photographs and x-rays of these objects that he has taken out of people. I mean, these are very strange little things he's pulling out of people's feet and bodies. He, uh, he gets into some amount of detail as far as the uh, specific makeup of these things, the metals that make them up. And um, I want to ask Dr. Lear about these reports because they, 
Dr. Lear claims that after submitting these uh, items to detailed forensic analysis in real labs that do this, that they've come back claiming that uh, these objects are made of non-terrestrial combinations of elements. And I think that that is a really interesting statement, and I think we need to ask him about that. Coming up next in the Paracast, Dr. Roger Lear. And now for something completely different. We'd like to hear from you. If you want to contact Gene and David, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the Paracast and visit our spirited discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them you heard their ad on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Dr. Lear, on a previous episode of the Paracast, we were talking to A.J. Gavard from Brazil, the Brazilian UFO magazine, and he mentioned that you had come down there to do some investigations. So, can you tell us exactly what you were looking into and what kind of results you had? Well, uh, you know, Gene, uh, my particular field of interest in the UFO field is the physical evidence. Right. And I had uh, been uh, to Brazil uh, many times before um, looking at... uh, various things and doing some uh, lecturing in most of the major cities in Brazil. The time uh, that I went down there uh, last, I I was in again a number of different places, but my field of interest at that particular time was trying to find something in relationship to the uh, Barchinia case in 1996. And uh, I had been actually uh, discouraged 
many times from uh, going to that area for a number of reasons, which all turned out not to be true. So um, I, I guess, you know, somewhere along the line, somebody didn't want Americans poking their nose into the Virginia case. Uh, hmm. not a two. But I got there, and uh, I got a tremendous uh, reception the, when the airplane landed. Now, Virginia is in the state of Minas Gerais, and it's a very small uh, town, maybe 150,000 people. It's uh, off the beaten path. Uh, tourists uh, don't go there. There's no reason to go there. It's an agricultural town. They have a lot of uh, dairy there, uh, cattle, coffee, and so on. They're very sim simple people, but very nice. Uh, there was an entourage that met uh, myself and a colleague of mine who uh, agreed to uh, operate cameras on this trip. And included in the entourage was uh, actually the mayor of uh, Virginia. I was uh, really blown away by uh, all of this. So when this happens, I uh, always say, you know, why, why would these people want to come meet me? I mean, I'm not really anything. So, uh, but anyway, it turned out to be an interesting visit there. Uh, now, let me say at the outset that, you know, I did not come back with that gem, that pearl that I was uh, looking for, a piece of the metal of the craft or uh, an x-ray or a lab report or uh, uh, some tangible piece of uh, physical evidence. But some people came forth uh, there were witnesses to the case uh, which had not uh, previously uh, testified. The leading investigator of that case is a Brazilian uh, attorney by the name of Ubirajara Rodriguez, and he'd been investigating uh, the UFO situation in Brazil for some uh, 36 years prior to the time I went there. And uh, being an attorney, he uh, kept uh, extensive records on this case with uh, uh, many, many uh, witness uh, testimonies and filing cabinets uh, that lined uh, one of the walls of his, uh, of his institute, and he does have uh, an institute for ufological research there. So um, amongst the things that happened, the two new witnesses that had come forth that never had been interviewed uh, by me was the wife of a deceased military police officer uh, and an orthopedic surgeon who was forced uh, by the Brazilian military to uh, operate uh, on one of these non-terrestrial individuals. So uh, from that standpoint, uh, the witness testimony was quite uh, golden. But uh, again, I say I did not leave Brazil with uh, any gem of uh, physical evidence which could be taken to a laboratory or to uh, experts uh, to look at. Dr. Lear, in your trip down there when you interviewed these people, what was your personal impression of them? Did you feel that these people were coming forward to speak to you about these, this experience out of a sense of wanting to sort of get this off their chest? Were, did they seem afraid in talking to you? Yes, uh, that's an excellent question because uh, the information which we gleaned from the wife of this deceased military police officer was zero. Hmm. And uh, it was so astounding to uh, ask her the questions and get the continuous I don't know for answers, uh, you know, and to see the look on her face. Uh, I have all this on, on video, but, you know, it was just amazing. You know, here, here's a woman who, I mean, there is no question that had been intimidated by some someone or, or some entity, and most probably it uh, was the, the military, because uh, you know she she couldn't tell me the the reason why her husband died, what his symptoms were, 
Uh, I even asked about uh, their children and you know how she was uh, sustaining herself, uh, whether she was getting a stipend, a stipend from the military or the Brazilian government. She had no answers to any of these questions whatsoever. They were all straight, I don't know, answers. And you know, from the look on her face, she was absolutely uh, terrified to answer the question. So uh, she was quite an enigma because I don't know why she volunteered to come forth uh, in the first place unless she was asked to do so by the powers that be and give us no answers. I mean, that's a possibility. Clearly, the, the uh, orthopedic surgeon, the physician involved in the case, uh, was just exactly what you mentioned. He had not talked to anybody for six years, and he kept this bottled up uh, within himself. And when we started the interview, he came out with some perfunctory denials that he was involved in any of this uh, at all, and that these were merely uh, rumors and uh, things that he had heard from colleagues around the hospital. And then to finish the interview with this uh, person and see him sitting in a chair uh, with tears running down his face and his hands uh, shaking as if he had palsy, <laughs> you know, uh, doggone well, uh, this, this was a personal experience by this man. Mm -hmm. you know, and it was a real catharsis for him to explain to us uh, what he had seen. When we had AJ on the show and he told us about the specific military officer, he said that this gentleman had actually handled one of these creatures. He had held him, and that he got very sick after this. In any of your research, did you find any corroborating evidence of other people suffering similar illness in terms of having repercussions of any kind of interaction with these beings or the materials from the alleged craft? Yes, the answer is a very simple yes. Uh, there were other individuals who did become ill, and I was not able to follow uh, up to see uh, whether they survived or whether they led to their demise. But there was individuals who did become ill. This uh, military police officer was a young 23-year-old police officer by the name of uh, Marco Elisharizi. And uh, he was uh, a young, healthy, uh, robust uh, individual. And looking at uh, the medical records, which we were finally able to uh, look at, and to look at the progress of the disease and so on, and listen to the testimony from uh, the doctor uh, that took care of him, uh, we were uh, able to come to a conclusion that uh, he probably expired from exposure to uh, microorganisms such as uh, a virus, which rendered his immune system non-functional, and the best is I can describe it as probably, I would say, uh, an Ebola-like illness. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. 
And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. On this half of the show, we're talking to UFO investigator and physician, Dr. Roger Lear, and he's telling us about his trip to Brazil where he investigated the crash retrieval case there from 1996, and we're talking about one particular person who handled the alien occupant and suffered from some kind of immunosystem disease of some sort, and that almost brings to mind something we had a few weeks ago, we had Nicholas Redfern on the show. Do you know him, Dr. Lear? Oh, I certainly do. Yes, and he was talking about the fact that he had co-authored a book where he covered instances in which people were infected by some kind of disease after coming in close proximity to an alien creature or a craft. So is this something you've also seen outside of this particular incident? Uh, in the literature, yes. Uh, there's a very good paper that I just recently read that uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Wood uh, wrote, and he goes into uh, infectious disease in experiencers who have uh, had some relationship to uh, ETs and the UFO phenomena. It was a very well, well done paper with a lot of research, so uh, I think anybody that goes on Bob Wood's uh, website can probably get a copy of this. Well, that's the book I think that Nicholas Redfern and Dr. Wood are working on, so this is something that will be published next year, if I take it correctly. Yes, I think so. This was uh, like a treatise that he had written for the book. It was uh, more of a summary uh, without going into a tremendous detail, but it was uh, very good, very uh, well-researched. You know, it brings up uh, a very good point. You know, there's those skeptics and debunkers out there who say, you know, why don't they land on the White House lawn? Well, uh, let's suppose the situation is, uh, as this possibly be, that they do have microorganisms uh, that could, you know, maybe wipe out every living thing on this planet. Uh, would you want them landing on the White House lawn and coming out and shaking hands with you? <laughs> I don't think so. Well, on the other hand, there have been cases of close encounters where people were not infected. So it could be one particular race of beings or a defense mechanism where if they feel they are in danger, they can generate this kind of infection on the part of their enemies. Well, uh, you know, you can look at it that way, but then like everything else in the field of ufology, there's a half a dozen ways of looking at things. <laughs> at least. <laughs> uh, <laughs> looking, at, looking at individual uh, races, if you want to use the term races, you know, maybe some have different microorganisms on their bodies, uh, maybe some have better protection mechanisms. Obviously, anybody that knows anything about this Brazilian case will realize that these entities didn't expect to be walking around amongst the human population. This craft, you know, with the reported damage to it, looked like it had been shot down. And it was also NORAD who told the Brazilian base agency exactly where this was coming down and what time it was and so on. So there's all indications that this thing may have been shot down. So the, the survivors, uh, you know, didn't expect to come in contact with human population of this planet. That, that's number one. Uh, number two, if we 
look at the uh, abduction scenario, which of course is my bailiwick, and reading uh, you know thousands and millions of words uh, relating to experiences aboard ship, many cases, probably the majority, will report that they've been put in some kind of a chamber. Some of them even say that you know they have fear of drowning as this thing fills up full of liquid, and there's other uh, devices aboard ship, and these could be uh, decontamination procedures so that our organisms don't kill them. Now, uh, to add to the complexity, we look at the situation that happens you know, in the Middle East and some places in Russia and so on, where witnesses have seen uh, entities land and then come out and they're wearing you know, astronaut-like gear. Maybe it's not just for survival in our atmosphere, but maybe it's also to protect them from organisms that we have here. And then the two you know, very famous uh, pictures, major pictures done in Hollywood. We got one was the War of the Worlds and the other was the Andromeda strain. Touched uh, upon this subject you know, very well. So it's, there's uh, many realities here. Dr. Lear, in your investigation of this case and correlating to a couple of things that have been brought up here, one of the things that struck me when we had AJ on was that the description of these creatures does not seem to fit the standard description of what we know to be the grays. These seem to be something different. And I'm wondering if you have more information about that. As a second part of the question, AJ also mentioned that the U.S. military was there within a day, and there was a huge presence of military forces and some sort of correlated uh, civilian forces, American forces, which has an interesting tie-in to what you just said, which is that NORAD alerted the uh, Brazilian military that this is, you know, they could find the craft in a certain place. What did you find in your trip there that seemed to correlate some of this information? Well, in looking at the records of the case uh, and uh, evidence that came uh, after I left uh, the meeting that the uh, six uh, Brazilian researchers, including AJ, had with the uh, Brazilian Air Force, shed some new light on this whole thing because involved in the Virginia case was the Army, that branch of the military, and the fire department, which in Brazil, the people don't realize this, but it is a military branch like we have our Coast Guard, Navy, Marines, and so on. Well, the fire department in Brazil is a military unit. And then on top of this, we have a small involvement of these military police officers, which is a separate branch again. So you have three portions of the Brazilian military involved, but one of them is not the Air Force. However, when they had the uh, the meeting in uh, Brasilia, uh, the Air Force uh, produced documents on two of the largest uh, Brazilian cases, evidently quite voluminous. But they did talk about events going around, uh, going on at the same time in the state of Minas Gerais, and this is uh, you know where uh, Virginia. So although the the Air Force wasn't uh, involved one to one, they knew about what was going on. Now the the American uh, aspect of it, we know that the Americans uh, were seen at the uh, autopsy of uh, one of these uh, beings, and you're correct in saying that they're not the typical greys. Uh, they were not. And as I said uh, earlier, I think that these entities did not <laughs> expect to be paying us a visit. Now, as to where they came from and what they were doing here, we don't have the slightest idea, but there are uh, many different entities that seen 
by different uh, cultures. Uh, some of the things that go on in Brazil uh, don't go on in the United States or in Asia or Europe or anywhere else. Some are not so nice. But uh, it's, it's the greatest possibility is that they were being visited by uh, <laughs> numbers of non-terrestrial beings for wherever they come from. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. If you want to get in touch with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. When you visit our website, theparacast.com, you can participate in our discussion forums. And we've just updated to a new scheme there with lots of new features. You want to check it out. And you can download past episodes of the show. And unlike some other shows, we don't hide <laughs> links to everything. Everything is front and center. You can download past episodes of the show, every single one, free of charge. We don't charge for memberships and all that stuff. We're talking to UFO investigator and physician Dr. Roger Lear, and we're talking about the specifics of an incredible case, incredible landing encounter in Brazil. So, Dr. Lear, therefore, we would assume then that these creatures, number one, being different than the ones we've seen, were the ones that, if they are aliens, they didn't intend for these creatures to actually land on Earth and interact with the population. No, I'm sure that's uh, the case from all indications. They had no uh, warning that they might uh, wind up here walking uh, amongst us. And in fact, the, the death of the uh, entity which was operated on in, the, uh, in this hospital in uh, Virginia by this orthopedic surgeon for repair of a fracture, when he left the hospital, the doctor told us that he was in satisfactory medical condition. And that is a, a very specific uh, medical terminology. It's very precise, and it means that the patient is ambulatory with all vital signs present normal. Then to be taken by the military and uh, almost immediately wind up uh, in another hospital uh, and then to be seen leaving that hospital in a casket the following morning. Uh, you know, nobody can seem to account for why this uh, creature, if that's what you want to call it, highly intelligent creature, I might add, uh, would have uh, succumbed to uh, something you know, upon immediately leaving a hospital where he was pronounced in satisfactory medical condition. Well, the thing I also wonder, too, is about an alien creature coming to Earth, not planning to interact with the population. There's a crash for whatever reason, and you'd have to think, however advanced this creature is, it would have to be really, really frightened at this experience. Oh, I would obviously say that they were frightened, plus the fact that uh, from what happened during the surgery and the strange events, I think, you know, it sounds pretty far out and it's, it's very speculative, but I think that these creatures, and, and perhaps others too, have the ability to sit there and recognize the fact they're not going to get rescued. They're going to die on a planet, uh, you know, and probably become 
you know, some specimen at a museum or dissected. And just maybe the reason for the death was that he was able to physically uh, leave uh, the body shell and uh, go where it is uh, that you go after you pass on. That correlates with other things that I've read and, and studied, uh, Dr. Lear. So that doesn't sound that far out to me, but you did allude there to other strange things happening during this doctor's examination of the creature. Could you please um, expand upon that? During the surgery, uh, they were uh, quite frightened because they didn't know what they were dealing with. In fact, they had no idea when they went into surgery that they were going to be operating on something that's uh, not particularly from this world. Uh, they saw the uh, individual covered up on the operating table, and the first thought was that it was a child and that there had been some you know, accident on this uh, nearby base. Hmm. And the x-rays were already hanging on the view box, and they looked at it, and although the bone itself looked peculiar. The doctor's description of the bone was uh, was bone was very similar to human bone, except uh, that it had uh, what's called lacunae or um, holes in the bone. Uh, he described it similar to a human osteoporotic bone. Osteoporosis is you know where the minerals, the calcium particularly, drops out of the bone, and you find these uh, look like vacuoles in the bone. But in the case of this uh, entity. Uh, the bone was stronger, had a greater tensile strength than the human bone. You know, they recognized it as a, as a fracture, so they went in particularly, you know, to repair the fracture. But when seeing that this was probably, you know, not a child and uh, not even from this planet, they were quite shocked. They didn't even know what to use to administer an anesthetic or whether the entity would feel pain. And so they wind up uh, doing it uh, under local anesthesia and go ahead and do the necessary things to, you know, repair the fracture. Well, when you see a fracture of this kind and you're dealing with the human being, uh, what you do is you look at the fracture ends and if the bone is, you know, one end is totally separated from the other, you put the two bone ends together. I mean, this is just, you know, simple mechanics. But once you've fitted the uh, the bone ends together, which is called approximation, then the next thing you do orthopedically is to stabilize the fracture site. So we have uh, a number of different uh, methodologies for doing that, pins, screws, plates, and so on. While they were trying to decide what the best uh, method of stabilization was, they went to move uh, the bone ends and found out that they couldn't separate them. The hmm. bone ends had already started to heal. Well, that's something I think we'd all like, those of us who have a problem where we've broken a bone or something, just have them regenerate. Yeah, well, that's, that's what happened in this case. Sure. And the doctor said that he felt that his hands were guided. Now, uh, I don't know exactly what that means, uh, other than some kind of a telepathic communication between the two that uh, showed him, you know, what to do and how to do it. But uh, the upshot, uh, you know, he asked what some of the unusual things were. The upshot of this was that uh, the wound, uh, bone, soft tissue, and skin were all healed uh, in a very short period of time. So uh, that's pretty unusual. He said the blood was uh, similar to our blood with a uh, liquid portion and a cellular portion, except the uh, little tiny white cells we have called platelets uh, were about uh, 10,000 fold the number uh, that is in human blood. And perhaps this uh, accounted for its uh, peculiar coagulation ability because he said immediately uh, when released, 
from a blood vessel, they, uh, a clot would form uh, almost instantaneously, so there wasn't any profuse bleeding. But uh, that, there could be other reasons, because there could be a different atmosphere where this uh, entity had come from, perhaps our atmosphere, uh, blood clotted more quickly, or it could have been something within the uh, structure of the blood itself. They could have been genetically engineered to be that way, too, to, for survival in traveling in deep space. Uh, that's true, uh, too. But who but knows? There was, there, there, yeah, there was, you know, uh, signs of extreme intelligence. These, these are not uh, stories you particularly hear about greys. Uh, certainly the little ones that seem to be uh, automated, going, uh, you know, task, task-like about their activities. You know, you, you hear abductees talk about, well, you know, the taller one came over, or the older one, or the female, a grey that's different and seems to sort of direct what's going on. But the the little ones seem very robot-like, and they could actually be physiological constructs for doing a particular task. Dr. Lear, I'm also wondering if this doctor conveyed to you that he felt that there was any attempt on the part of this creature to psychically or telepathically communicate with him. Was there any commentary along those lines from him? Uh, yes, uh, there was, but uh, you know, and not in, in those particular words. Uh, there were some things that happened where uh, uh, there was you know, obvious telepathic communication. I mean, how else uh, could a creature guide his hands if not telepathically? Mm-hmm. He didn't say, take your you know, little finger and put it here while you're moving your second and third finger. So, uh, yeah, there was a good indication of a telepathic communication. Not like you see on Star Trek with Mr. Spock using his telepathic abilities to mind meld. <laughs> yeah, well, I also remember the case was <laughs> back to Star Trek where something happened to Spock and some part of his nervous system was uh, disconnected. You remember that episode? And he actually uh, guided Dr. McCoy the, on how to perform a brain yeah. surgery. Brain and brain. What is brain? Right, right, right. His brain was removed, and they had to put his brain back in his head. And Mm. they never explained how the body maintained itself without a brain. But then Spock's brain was the name of the episode. It was sci-fi, guys. It was Star Trek. Uh, Yeah, that's all in uh, in Vulcan physiology. (laughs) You know about those Vulcans. They do things we can't talk about. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.com. It's all out of this world. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next.
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You can get in touch with us by writing to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com. We have new message boards with new features. Check them out, or you can download past episodes of the show free of charge. Very important because other shows charge you. We have the pleasure of having Dr. Roger Lear return to the program for this session. We're talking about this incredible crash retrieval episode, and we're talking about, I guess, almost a unique race of aliens or whatever they are. I mentioned, too, Gene, that all this information is available on a book that I wrote that's still selling very well. It's the complete story of my investigation, including things that I could not prove, rumors, who was there. There's a chapter in the book that Stanton Friedman wrote comparing the Virginia case to the Roswell case. It's called simply UFO Crash in Brazil. And it's available through my website or by calling a number. And, of course, if someone wants the number, it's 805-495-2613. And if they tell the person who answers the phone that they're here through Paracast, we'll only charge $1 for shipping and handling. And this is at the Alien Scalp. Alienscalpel.com? Alienscalpel.com, one S, one word. Okay, Alienscalpel, one S, one word, dot com, where you can learn about his research and his books and save money on shipping. We'll have a special link set up, by the way, at the Paracast website, so those of you who are interested in the book can go ahead and learn more about it. David. I'd like to follow up with some of the things we talked about with Dr. Lear on his previous appearance on our show, and also some of the stuff that I've read in this new article in UFO Magazine. Dr. Lear, uh, you talk about these um, metallic objects that you've removed from a number of patients. And, and, of course, this is incredibly fascinating in that you seem to be the one person who is pursuing this avenue of research in a serious fashion. And I want to commend you and thank you for that. Um, well, thank you. You're doing the hard pulling here. You've sent these things out for uh, independent lab analysis. And uh, in the article, it mentions uh, that these the metal inside the membrane, we're going to get to the membrane in a minute because I'm actually more fascinated by that in a way, but that these, uh, these metallic objects are made of a non-terrestrial combination of iron, oxygen, and phosphorus. What specifically is the determination that classifies these things as non-terrestrial? Well, uh, first of all, we have to look at the uh, way the metals are put together and look at uh, the anomalous uh, structures uh, within. Now, the last surgery I performed was September the 23rd of this year, and uh, I just returned Wednesday from uh, Toronto, uh, Canada, and uh, we had this uh, specimen looked at in depth by the University of Toronto uh, Material Science Department. It was very intense two days I spent uh, in the laboratory uh, personally uh, with the PhDs and the scientists. So uh, we don't have the, the data back yet, but we did find some very interesting things. So we look for uh, not only what metals or what elements are involved, but uh, how they're put together and if there's any obtuse uh, uh, structures or uh, things that are difficult to explain. One of them we recently found are some spheres 
<laughs> which are made out of portions of the metal. And uh, at the time I left, they didn't know how these were made. Uh, we find uh, boundary lines, which uh, separate one portion of uh, metal from another portion of metal with uh, uh, leaching of uh, elements uh, from one uh, into another portion and then into this uh, soft tissue membrane. In addition, we find things like uh, magnetic objects uh, containing iron. Well, what's the surprise there? None. If uh, something is magnetic, you would expect it to contain iron. But then when we do uh, x-ray diffraction examination of the iron, we find out that the iron is uh, amorphous and uh, has no crystalline structure. And I can tell you, again, from past experience being in uh, Black Budget Labs here in the U.S., that uh, we do know how to make uh, metals that uh, are amorphous. I don't know what we use them for, but we don't know how to make them magnetic. So if uh, academic science uh, on this planet doesn't know how to make something, then Black Budget Secret science uh, doesn't know how to uh, mm. make the magnetics, and obviously it's not uh, within the purview of our known technology. And then, of course, when we are able to get uh, testing done, which looks for um, isotopic ratios, and we find that uh, some of these objects contain uh, isotopic ratios that are not earthly, and uh, I can explain what that is very simply. Uh, if we mine a mineral here, let's take uranium, because we all know what U-235 is. That's one of the isotopes of uh, uranium. And uh, we know that we nightly, we like uh, U-238, which is uh, what we use for the release of atomic energy. Now, uh, there's a ratio between the amount of U-235, U-236, U-238, and uranium ore as is mined on this planet. Uh, and, of course, the number uh, represents the uh, number of neutrons that are within the nucleus of the atom. So if we mine that anywhere uh, on the planet, there's only uh, a slight uh, difference of maybe uh, 2%. Whereas if we found uh, the uranium that came from uh, Mars or from the moon or uh, from a meteorite or asteroid or comet, it would still be uranium, but uh, the ratio of these isotopes would be different. This is, uh, for example, how the uh, meteorite that was found in the uh, Arctic, which NASA uh, noted that there was carbonaceous life, how they knew that it came from Mars, because mm -hmm. we know some of the uh, mineral isotopic ratios uh, on Mars, and therefore we were able to identify that uh, meteorite as uh, coming from there. So non-terrestrial uh, isotopic ratios plus other factors of how things are put together, so to speak, uh, can give us an indication whether it's uh, within the uh, academic purview of our technology or whether in the black budget purview or not in any earthly technology. And I hope that answers the question. We only have a couple of moments left, so so, David, you want to kind of come up with a couple of wrap-up questions here? Yeah, actually, before we, we wrap up with Dr. Lear, I'm really curious to know what he's discovered. Dr. Lear, what have you found out about this membrane that surrounds these metallic objects? So you found this to be a very interesting substance. Has there been any further discovery in terms of being able to figure out what this stuff is made of? Yes, and I 
I'm I'm going to be uh, uh, sitting on a tack waiting for that data because uh, they became so interested in the uh, objects that I brought up there. Uh, they were going to send the uh, soft tissue or, or biological material out to uh, biological sciences. So we're going to uh, have a, a bevy of new information come in Excellent. about that material. And what it seems to be is that uh, one of the functions could act as a boundary layer between the metal within and our body. Uh, nextly, it could serve uh, as an electrical connection uh, between our nervous system and whatever the object does. So it looks uh, very promising. Uh, one of the things that we're going to also try and get done, is, which has never been done before, is uh, whose DNA uh, is in this tissue? Is mm. it the DNA of the host? Or, uh, heavens to Betsy, is it somebody or some other DNA? Oh, boy. If that's the question that's answered, then the rest of my hair will fall out. <laughs> <laughs> Either way. <laughs> well, we'd love to have you back on when you get those results because uh, based on this article in UFO Magazine and um, based on our previous discussion with you, I think there's a lot of potential for this substance to be of tremendous interest and use to science in general. Well, I agree with you because if we could remanufacture this uh, substance and it does what we think it does, you know, you could wrap a heart or a kidney or a pin or a screw in it and put it inside the body, there would be no need for one to take uh, a very expensive anti-rejection medication for the rest of their life. Well, the drug companies aren't going to like that, though. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they might make as much uh, manufacturing this uh, material as they would on the drugs, and maybe even more. Exactly. exactly. Raises a larger issue, yes, indeed. So let me ask you, other than this analysis that you're waiting on, what other things are you going to be working on in the next few months? Maybe this has to be the last question. Well, the next few months are going to be really, really busy because uh, I looks like things are really coming into place. We're going to physically construct a center for uh, science research. And uh, this will be, you know, physical evidence in re reference to not only the UFO phenomena, but other related phenomena. And we've gotten to the point where we think that we have uh, financing for such a project and the land to build it on. So it looks like it's going to become a reality. And uh, if it goes according to what is happening now, this may become a reality next year. So uh, stay tuned. And if you want more information about Dr. Lear, go to his site, AlienScalpel.com. That's one word, AlienScalpel.com, and you'll learn more. We'll have it linked over at the Paracast.com website. Dr. Roger Lear, thanks once again for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you so uh, thanks much. Thanks for having me as a guest, Gene. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Coming up next on the Paracast, author Marie D. Jones talks about science, how new discoveries in quantum physics and new science may explain the existence of paranormal phenomena. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? 
people can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295, or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Marie, you've written a book about the scientific approach to understanding pretty much everything in the paranormal realm. I'm wondering, how did you get interested in this topic? Did you have an experience that motivated you to want to learn more about how the paranormal works? I did, but really I grew up with both worlds. I've always been interested in UFOs and ghosts and Bigfoot and that kind of stuff since I was a child. And I, my dad is a scientist. He's a geophysicist. So I grew up with you know, science everywhere, books and my dad's research and slides of him going off to different countries to, you know, look at earthquakes and volcanoes and things. So I grew up with both worlds and I was kind of, you know, stuck in the middle where I was able to look at things that were outside the box, but also kind of keep a rational mind, a rational angle on it. And over the years, I, I've had some what I call close calls. I think I saw a UFO once. I believe I saw a ghost once. But because of my scientific background, you know, through osmosis, through my dad, mm -hmm. I always kind of caught myself. Is that what, what, what I'm really seeing? Is that what's really going on here? Um, but I did have a profound experience actually meditating uh, several years ago when I really needed to meditate because I'm very high strung and high energy. And during the meditation, I opened my eyes. I was very, very deep, deep under, deep into the meditation. And I opened my eyes and everything in my room was vibrating light. And earlier in the day, my dad and I had been on the phone talking about quantum physics because he's very interested in that, too. And he had mentioned how, well, you know, basically everything is made of light, different frequencies. And that must have stuck in my head because, again, when I opened my eyes, everything I saw was uh, either a denser or, you know, a lighter type of vibration. It was all light. And then after about 10 seconds or so, everything came back into view as what it really was. And years later, I remember reading about how there really aren't any such thing as particles. Particles at the quantum level are also waves. And only when they are observed do they become particles. We do what we, it's called collapsing their wave function. And when I read that, I thought, you know, I'll be darned. I wonder if that is what I got to see. I mean, is that impossible or could I have possibly gotten a glimpse of what 
reality is like before you collapse the wave function and everything takes form. You know, like I got to see the formless side of things. And that really got me hooked on learning about quantum physics. And that sort of led into consciousness research and just kind of snowballed from there. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Marie D. Jones, author of Science, and that's the way we're going to pronounce it because it's spelled P-S-I-E-N-C-E, subtitled How New Discoveries in Quantum Physics and New Science May Explain the Existence of Paranormal Phenomena. This is going to be one fascinating session. David? It's interesting how we talk about quantum physics and quantum mechanics in the context of paranormal phenomenon because it's, it's almost as if what we're really talking about here is our own limitations of the understanding of the nature of reality in talking about things that we can't necessarily quantify as being paranormal when in fact they're part of the otherwise normal makeup of the universe, just not something that we necessarily have instrumentation to measure. Oh, exactly. What are your thoughts about that? You know, I agree. I think that everything we look at as being mysterious and paranormal is simply something that science can explain, but scientists have yet to explain. Mm -hmm. You know, I like to say that I believe that there is science behind everything. Because to me, science is nothing more than the explanation of the structure of something, how it works, you know, what it's made of. And maybe you could say that religion or spirituality is the essence of something. And so everything can be explained by science. The problem is we haven't caught up. You know, we don't mm -hmm. understand nature. We really don't. We don't understand the nature that's right in front of our eyes. How could we possibly be arrogant enough to say that we understand the nature that is sort of on that more implicate, deeper level? I think we're getting a lot closer. The more minds that are opened, the closer I think we're going to get. It's a cumulative effort. Just in terms of the average everyday person who interacts with their world in a way where, you know, they, they touch a wall, they touch a surface, and they say, this is solid. And, you know, they have you have that thing where people rap on a tabletop and go, it's not as solid as this. Knock, right. knock, knock. And, <laughs> you, you know, you want to say to them, okay, do you understand about how atoms work and how basically when you knock on something, you say, see how solid this is. A vast majority of the actual space there is empty space. It's not exactly. actual physical matter. It's hard to wrap your mind around the fact that nothing is really solid. Uh, and I think that the more people that are learning about quantum, and also I include a lot of theoretical physics in my book, but just to make it easier, we kind of grouped it into quantum physics. But, you know, if you look at how energy behaves at the quantum level, where you have teeny tiny little subatomic particles splitting around. And, you know, you realize that's what everything is made of, but there's a lot of empty stuff in between. That's not going to apply to their day-to-day -day life. That's not what they see. That's not their experience. Right. So if they read something, they start to look at life in a new way. And then all of a sudden, their mind is open to perceiving things differently. I think that's one of the keys here. It, we're so limited in how we perceive reality. And yet, you know, what are we taking in? Such a small percentage of the information that's coming at us. I think it's a very useful exercise for people to study a table of the electromagnetic spectrum and yeah. to look at the portion that is visible light, the part that we really perceive with our eyes that is right. the um, our main interface to the world, if you would, yeah. and, and to realize what a small, tiny little portion of the spectrum of wave energy we can actually perceive, and you look exactly. at the whole chart, and it's it's a very humbling experience. And what's really neat is, you know, when you learn about all these different types of insects and animals that can perceive other parts of the spectrum, and, you know, you realize that we think we're such hot stuff, but really, we have such a limited viewpoint of 
nature and reality. And, you know, we might be able to learn something from some of these other creatures if we could find out a way to see what they're seeing. But, yeah, it's real limited. And and as soon as people realize that, it's like this whole new universe has opened up to them. Mm -hmm. Wow, okay, yeah, maybe there are ghosts and UFOs and things like that and time travel. Well, we get into some some hairy kind of territory. There's some real problematic issues. I mean, one of the things you talk about in the book, for example, is the idea of using a wormhole as a way to, to move vast distances very quickly. And this has been a popular topic in science fiction, but we've seen this brought up over and over again. I mean, but of course, there's a physical reality to that, that in any kind of conceivable technology that, that we can envision, to get near a black hole is to essentially be crushed to nothing. Exactly. Not just to get, you know, if you, even if you could get near it, how do you get through it without yeah. it collapsing in on you? And, and, you know, and we don't even know that wormholes exist. They're totally theoretical at this point. But you know, when you have when you have some real brilliant minds that are that are thinking that they do exist, that they can exist, and that maybe they exist on the quantum level. You know, we don't have to look for big, huge ones out in space that we can get a spaceship through. Maybe they exist in a different way on a quantum level. Maybe they're they're able to at least get some energy in from one dimension or one parallel universe to another. And the fact that they're trying to prove this stuff, I I feel like eventually, if wormholes exist, we're going to find out. You know, the problem has always been, how do you prove it? How do you get the money and how do you set up the research to be able to prove something like that? Obviously, you need, you know, massive amounts of time at the particle accelerator lab in CERN or somewhere like that. But I think the more minds that are applied to these concepts, better the chance we're going to learn once and for all whether it is a possibility or no. Not at all. And the way it stands now, you know, most theoretical physicists believe that wormholes can exist, but there's no proof. Some theoretical physicists believe that we could, you know, do something to keep the mouth of the of the black hole open enough to get something in. And then, you know, the same thing on the other end with the white hole. But, you know, most don't. So it's going to take some real maverick research to see if we can ever prove this. But you're absolutely right. At this point, it's totally theoretical, totally speculative. But it's fun to think about. And the more people that get on it, especially people that are in this field, the closer we're going to get to actually finding out whether or not this is going to be a viable concept. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let me interrupt and tell our listeners you're on the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to contact us, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. Check our website, thepowercast.com. Check our newly revitalized message boards. Okay, we'll do that. And we're talking today to Marie Jones. She is author of Science, Science, How New Discoveries in Quantum Physics and New Science May Explain the Existence of Paranormal Phenomena. 
David? We bring up a very interesting point here in that there's a level of reality that we want to understand and measure, but that's also very different from the notion of being able to have influence and control in that realm. When we talk about science understanding the nature of the structure of, let's say, atomic reality, understanding the specific structures is very different from being able to go in and manipulate them. Exactly. So when we talk, right, we talk about time travel, we can at one level maybe a, approach a theory that says, okay, theoretically maybe this is possible, but that's a very big difference from being able to say, okay, we have now technology that allows us to control the situation. Exactly, and to do anything functional with it. Uh, but, you know, if somebody can prove that time travel is possible, and I know that there have been experiments where they have, you know, these guys, well, not just guys, I don't want to be sexist, but where they <laughs> have managed to send a, a particle, you know, one billionth of a second into the future. I mean, this has been done. So, what we need to take it to the next step are minds that are open enough to say, okay, what is the next thing that we can do? Can we send it a second, you know, half a second into the future? I don't think in my lifetime I'm going to be seeing somebody from 2,000 years popping in, you know, at my door. But what's really exciting is that if we can do it on the quantum level, you know, can we find the genius and the technology someday to do it on the macro, macrocosmic scale. And then also, you know, asking the question, are there civilizations out there that have already done this? Because they are that far advanced, you know, 100,000 years advanced from, from where we're at. And I mean, look at the progress we've made in the last 100 years with technology. Mm -hmm. I think we do a pretty good job. But, you know, and a lot of people believe that the next few years are going to bring huge leaps in, you know, nanotechnology and all kinds of stuff. So it is possible that in my lifetime, you know, somebody will send a particle one second into the future. And that proves to me that someday somebody's going to do it one minute into the future. You know, when we talk about wormholes, which you alluded to earlier, I kind of wonder if that's really the only way to really get space travel off dead center. Because right now, even to get to Mars, yeah. and now that we've got you know water flowing on the surface of Mars, we really want to get there, it's going to take incredible amount of months to fly there, lots of dangers in space. Exactly. But yeah. to go through a wormhole, if we talk about wormholes, then we start getting into that TV series we all know about, Stargate SG-1, where you right. enter this chamber. The TV. But <laughs> the point, all right, all let's right. talk about the reality. Is it possible to have some kind of transmission device that funnels you through a wormhole so you come out at the other end instantaneously oh, oh, stop, or whatever? Stop with the science fiction. Look, <laughs> the reason they bring up wormholes is that what... The, the whole point of a wormhole is that theoretically a wormhole is a way to bend space-time. Right? It's a shortcut that we, we presume at some theor a theoretical level must exist, but really we're addressing the issue of bending space-time. It's sort of like the idea of bending the rules of the game in order to play the game differently. Exactly. Is as a, I said, what is a wormhole? No, 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 I understand. What about the movie Contact, then? No, it's another movie. Forget it. It's a movie. It's silly. Let's a talk about facts. Oh, please. <laughs> the thing is, 
<laughs> David woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. Okay. Why do we have to? We everything in when we discuss these topics, Gene often brings up movies, and movies are great. I've worked on movies; they're lovely, they're wonderful, whatever. They're entertainment. It's important to talk about things that we understand and know, and not in the context of a movie, because you have to remember that a movie is all about a focus group that figured out what's the lowest common denominator for the way to explain something, so that the audiences will buy popcorn and go see it. This has so nothing to do with actually understanding. A twenty-four-year-old can understand it, right? Exactly. Poor David, so so jaded, so jaded. No, I just—it's like when we talk about these things, why don't we talk about serious stuff? Well, we, we have to. That's one of the problems. Is you know, sometimes it takes a goofball like me to write a book and throw it out there. Because you know what? I don't have to worry about tenure. I don't have to worry about losing my professorship or losing my reputation as a brilliant scientist. I can kind of just throw it out there. But what's really neat to me is that there are guys and gals with PhDs after their names that are looking at, and not just wormholes, because I kind of personally think, as I was doing my research, I felt like, you know what, this is this is old stuff. To me, there's more promise in something like the zero point field than in wormholes. Tell us to the folks out there who haven't taken advanced science yet. (laughs) What are we talking about here? Well, if you're talking about how a UFO could get from here to there, you know, one of the most cutting-edge things that's being looked at is the zero-point field. And basically, um, it's a ground state of energy that fills empty space. Uh, Some people call it dark matter, but, you know, I think they're two different things. But basically, it is sort of a fundamental level of energy vibrating at the possible lowest level, you know, without not vibrating at all, which is why they call it zero-point. It's the closest they can get to zero-point Kelvin. And it's self-regenerating, and we know it's there. Okay, there have been some experiments that have been done that prove that it exists. However, to extract energy from this field, this sort of field of all fields and source of all sources, as some people like to metaphysically quote-unquote put it, that's the problem. How could we extract energy? We, we know that it's there. We know that it's a ground state of energy that is infinite. It's constantly, you know, it's like you take a bucket of it out of the ocean and it fills right back up. But how do we extract it? Well, you know, there's research going on right now, courtesy of the Defense Department and some big aerospace corporations that are looking into how to do this, because the belief is we might be able to use this one day to fuel our rocket ships to Mars and other planets. And then, you know, you've got theoretical physicists that are saying, well, gee, maybe this is what they are using for their energy source to be able to flit across space. Okay, well, now we put it on a practical level. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to contact us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com. And if you check our website, theparacast.com, you can download past episodes of the show free of charge, no surcharges, no special memberships, none of that stuff that some other shows do to monetize their site. We have nothing against money, but we don't charge for the past episodes. Okay, we're talking to Marie Jones, author of Science, How New Discoveries in Quantum Physics and New Science May Explain the Existence of Paranormal Phenomena. Zero point. Okay, what's the what's the energy conglomerate going to think about something like that? Well, that's one of the problems, <laughs> you know, is that in order to do research, you either have to have somebody funding you like, uh, you know, Lear or one of these huge aerospace corporations or the Department of Defense because they're obviously looking at it from a, a military standpoint. But, yeah, I mean, if this is something that could one day replace fossil fuels, it's going to be good for us, but it's not going to be good for them. But, hey, too bad. <laughs> Well, you would think that these organizations would be in a position to be able to capitalize on, on these uh, discoveries. It's not like they're not in the business anyway. When you're in the business of energy, it exactly. seems to me like you're in the business of energy, right? And I suspect that they probably are interested, you know, and I'm sure they're not going to tell us because they don't want the competitors to know or they don't want other, co whatever. You know, I'm sure they're working on it because if it is possible that this could be a, you know, replenishing infinite cheap source of fuel, somebody's going to want to patent something real quick. Yeah. And I think that would be exciting. I mean, if it's not going to destroy the planet, I'm all for it. I don't care who gets a hold of it. Of course, I don't really want them jacking the prices up on it if it's, you know, everywhere and easily accessible. But well, if it, also, if it's renewable in the sense that you don't have to keep buying tons and tons of it, then yeah. the energy industry is going to say, you know what, we'd rather destroy the planet now. And then <laughs> after we've destroyed the planet, there's nothing and left. Yeah. Then we'll use this is our backup plan. Zero point energy, that's our backup plan, folks. Well, you know, I mean, obviously it would take them a lot of money and a lot of years to try to figure out how to extract it, and they want to make their billion-dollar profits now, not later. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right on that. Right. If, if there's no profit in it, forget about it. Yeah. I'm jaded, well, maybe. This all makes me crazy when we start talking about motives and profit, and then, Marie, you brought up a great point that it's primarily the military that's looking into these uh, sources of readily available energy. I mean, why is it that as, as a species, so much of our technological, well, actually really almost all of our technological yeah. uh, motivation throughout all of time has been military applications. It drives the development of technology. Is this kind of an indication that we're, we're messed up at a core level? What does this mean? Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's, it's disturbing and distressing that the very first people to jump in on remote viewing research, you know, was the military yeah. and, and with zero-point energy and anti-gravity and you name it. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, what is your first priority? Is your first priority to feed, clothes, shelter, and make your people prosperous, successful, and, you know, giving back to society? Or is it to go wage war with another nation? Right. Our priorities are definitely screwed up. Definitely. It's well, sad. It makes it more the more difficult to exploit these technologies in a way that would be beneficial to everyone. It has to have the military application. It has to be something that we could use in warfare first. Sure. 
And then after that, it goes to the guys that make the billion-dollar profit before it trickles down to us, you know, the benefit of the good of humanity. We're at the bottom of the scale, unfortunately. You know, and it's unfortunate because there's probably so much, well, as you guys know, all the people that you talk to, there's probably some incredible things out there that have been discovered and, and looked into, and yet, you know, they fall by the wayside because if it's not being grabbed up by the military, then... Who cares? You know, nobody gets any money to do more research. If it is grabbed up by the military, then you're in big trouble if you keep researching it. Unless the military comes to your door and says, I'll tell you what, continue the research. But yeah, now we control we the own access. <laughs> we own you. We own your body. If you don't right. like it, just think of the last time that you had your taxes audited. And if you thought that experience was bad, I'll yeah. tell you what, we could make it a lot worse. If I were a researcher and I had some amazing discovery, you know, and I actually had proof of it, I could duplicate it in a laboratory setting, I'm not real sure who I would be able to trust. That's a tough one. You know, I'm sure a lot of these people just sort of disappear and, and for various reasons. Or, or they get they get bought off. And, and this is yeah. the part that I personally find really frustrating in that what we don't seem to have in today's day and age, and Marie, maybe you can give me a name of a person who would be the equivalent of a modern day Tesla. I mean, Tesla was driven on many levels. Yeah. He, he was, but there was this primary thing in him, which was the desire to sort of forward humanity, to push humanity forward into the future and to try to, well, Tesla was really big about trying to abolish war. War, yeah. Because he, he saw the horrors of it through the First World War. He, he was witness to that as an adult, to see what that did to the world. Who is the Tesla of today? Who, who can we point oh, at and God. say, you know, right? I don't know that we have one. Well, I if you we did, have... I think the military would have them working privately oh, yeah. in a laboratory. You wouldn't hear about them. Okay. Yeah, that's true. I think that there are some mavericks. I, I, I think Hal Pudoff is doing great work. I mean, he's really forging ahead with the zero-point field research. And you know, there are guys out there that are writing books that are pushing the envelope. Paul LaViolette. La There's a few people. There are people in the paranormal field that are trying to push it, too. But I don't think we have anybody on that genius level that, no, I think he'd either be disappeared, quote-unquote, or bought off or silenced into submission, you know, and maybe forced to work. I mean, we're being paranoid here, but, you know, we have good reason to. Cause it's Besides, we do discuss conspiracy <laughs> theories on this show, and certainly we've talked about government secrecy with regard to UFOs okay. so many times. We know it's there, you know. So, yeah, I think there could be a man or woman out there that is on that level, but we may not hear, hear about them or from them uh, for a long time if we do it all. Or we'll hear about development and then the story disappears. Oh, sure. Yeah, you know, some of these um, science websites, are World Science and Science Daily, you know, you'll hear, you'll read these stories, and then a couple of weeks later, you try to do a little more research into them, and that's it. They're gone, you know. <laughs> so the big question, of course, is did somebody buy them off? Did they find out that the inventions were not real inventions, that were fake? I mean, if you go through the UFO field, you find so many stories about yeah. alleged anti-gravity craft. Well, Otis right. T. Carr is one example. And I forgot totally about Otis T. Carr until a few months ago. We had Bill Ryan and Kerry Cassidy on the show. We were talking primarily about this Project Serpo thing where we supposedly had interaction with aliens and we had kind of a foreign exchange program. And they mentioned somebody who was involved with the late Otis T. Carr. Now, Otis T. Carr, to bring people's minds back to this, Otis T. Carr, by the way, I guess he was like some kind of 
cleaning person or assistant for Nikola Tesla. He was never even a scientist. I mean, anyway. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Write us, news at thepowercast.com, news at thepowercast.com, and visit our website, thepowercast.com, for free, free downloads of all our past episodes and to check out our newly updated message boards. Marie Jones joins us today. She's author of Science, How New Discoveries in Quantum Physics and New Science May Explain the Existence of Paranormal Phenomena. Now, some months back, I read the story where they're trying to teleport objects Mm -hmm. and maybe we can talk about that because that's another way to travel from one place to another teleportation you know we could beam down beam up beam sideways something like that again i'm talking science fiction sorry david there have been a couple of articles that i've read about uh one was with a frog frog embryo or something where they actually claim they teleported it actually a couple of physicists at university of ithaca in new york cornell I think it's Cornell. Those crazy New Yorkers. Yeah, but, but you know what they did in a laboratory? They they literally teleported what a biological entity. Well, no, well actually, now they're going to try to put a particle in two places at once. But what they did is they made an object move just by watching it. So there are these experiments going on in laboratories all over the world. You know, and a lot of them right here in America. And one of the ones I remember reading about, and I wish I would have printed it out, was somebody claimed that they were able to teleport a frog embryo. And I don't, you know, I mean, mm. this is on one of those science websites that has a lot of fringe stuff. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, and it's one of the things that when I went back later, <laughs> I couldn't find anything. It was mysteriously it. gone, yeah. But mm. what's exciting is that, you know, this other story, it, these two guys at Cornell, it was Cornell, is that, you know, they did it, and it, I guess it was documented. They had witnesses, and now they're going to go on. They're going to try to put a particle in two places at once. So what may sound outlandish one day you know, uh, the next day can sound like, oh, okay, that's an experiment that's being done, and they did it on this level. Now they're going to kick it up a notch and do it with something a little bit bigger. So I kind of feel like at the quantum level, you know, we know that particles can do all kinds of crazy things, and teleportation is simply possible there. So again, in my opinion, if we have the genius and the research, you know, we can get to the point where we can teleport something, even if it's something, you know, as small as a molecule. Well, yesterday a molecule, today an insect, tomorrow, well... But, you know, 2,000 years in the future, and unfortunately I'd, I'd love to be around when they do it, but I get excited at the possibility that it can be done. You know, if sure. it's done at the quantum level, do we have what it takes to figure out how to extrapolate that same process, you know, to something a little bit bigger? And maybe it's not possible, but, you know, each it seems like each time I read one of these articles, they've done something that I didn't think they could do maybe a year ago. You know, and it's like, it's like a snowball effect. Now, if these two same physicists can put one particle in two places at once, that's going to open up a whole new ball game for people that are, you know, that don't believe these yogis in India who claim that they can be seen in two places at once. I've never seen one do it, but, you know, there are people that say they've met these guys. <laughs> it's really neat to me that at the quantum level, 
so many things are possible that we just, you know, put our fists down and say that's impossible at the bigger level of our reality. Of course, you're talking also about quantum computers. Oh, yeah. I mean, can you imagine when they finally master, you know, what they're going to be able to do, the speed of thought, <laughs> the yeah, speed but, of processing. And I'm not but, sure that's a good thing, though. Hmm. Well, here's the thing. I mean, as far as computing goes, we are still stuck in the age of, of electronic computers. We haven't even taken the incredibly significant step into computers that are based on optical circuitry. Where And the key issue there is that the differentiation, the distinction between memory and processor mm-hmm. in an optical computer, that ceases to be an issue. That opens up a whole different type of architectural approach that opens up a whole different set of opportunities for what software does. And in today's world, we have linear processing software, basically one step is done at a time at increasingly faster speeds, but essentially all computing is still at a core level, essentially a serial process. We don't have things that are parallel, truly parallel processing because the software ends up being a tremendous issue. And all of this, of course, brings up a key point I think is important to make in this discussion in that what we have is a disconnection between the speed of the development of technology and the fact that that is in no way synchronized with our spiritual development and evolution. And and I suspect at a core intuitive level that a lot of the keys to moving into quantum technology are going to involve our understanding that there needs to be a spiritual interface between ourselves and this technology, a realm that we at this point in time do not vaguely understand. Mm, That is really an interesting way to put it. And I think that that brings, you know, when you have an experiment at the quantum level and the connection that our human consciousness and the role of of the observer plays Mm -hmm. is where that spiritual connection comes into to play, so to speak. And and I find that the most fascinating thing about thing about all of this is that, you know, we as the observer have so much, if not everything, to do with what is going on at the most basic fundamental level of our existence, which is the quantum level. And what does that tell us about what's happening in our greater reality? And yet we're so blind to that, you know, to what our role is, to the part that we play and how we perceive reality. Like you said before, you know, most people don't know that they see just a tiny spectrum of, you know, the electromagnetic spectrum. And unless we begin to make that connection, you're right, we're never going to catch up to what's possible. Recently I said to somebody, and it was a moment of clarity for me where I began to understand the problem that we're facing with this. I said to a friend of mine, you know, the deal is we are spiritual beings in a material world, and it's not the other way around. We're not material beings in a spiritual world. That is actually, I think that's the core of the misunderstanding. Yeah, oh, I agree. I think that's so important. People turn away because they feel like, well, that you're getting into religion. and But really, no, you're just getting into the other side of reality. And one of my favorite physicists, David Bohm, talked about this, how there are three levels. He feels there are three levels of our reality. There is the explicate order, which is what we see and perceive, or, you know, knocking on your computer and your desk and everything that has form around you. Well, there's also this implicate underlying level of reality that seems to be, uh, you know, it has a sort of a metaphysical feel to it because it's generating your reality, and yet you can't really understand how it's doing that. But he also says that there's a super implicate order that is even higher 
and all of that. And I mean, if you want to call that God, whatever, go ahead. You know, use whatever word you want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that to me is just the most amazing description of the wholeness of reality that I've ever heard. And yet, a lot of unfortunately, a lot of people in the science community will turn away from anything that smacks of spiritual. You know, even if it's not religious or or anything that smacks of the metaphysical. And yet, if you start saying that consciousness can change an experiment at the quantum level, you are including spirituality. I mean, you're including the human experience. You cannot deny that anymore. And so there's a real wall right now between science and, you know, spirituality. Well, I just feel like until that wall comes down, we're not going to make progress on, you know, in the science world. We're not going to get to that next level of understanding. And on the other side of the fence, the spiritual, religious, whatever you want to call it, you know, we're always going to be stuck on these two sides of the wall. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Send your messages to us at news at theparacast.com. Visit theparacast.com for our discussion forums and to download past episodes. And we're talking to Marie Jones, author of Science, starting with the letter P, How New Discoveries in Quantum Physics and New Science May Explain the Existence of Paranormal Phenomena. You know, some of the UFO contact-related experiences over the last few decades have brought into light the same kind of message that the alleged quote-unquote space brothers deliver, which is that our spiritual selves and our physical selves are out of sync. Mm-hmm. I agree. I don't know that we need aliens from the planet, you know, doodah to tell us that. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I, I hate to judge. I cannot say with 100% clarity whether somebody is actually having an experience or not. You know, I, I don't want to be arrogant enough to say that somebody is not actually seeing and hearing what they're seeing and hearing. You know, I don't know that we need that sort of outside or maybe we do. I mean, maybe we're so dense that we need those sort of fantastical ways of getting a message to, you know, the greater humanity because we tend not to listen to our own intuition that's telling us the same thing. So if we even imagine that the aliens 
came down with a message. The benevolent Space Brothers told us we have to get our house in order, get our environment straightened out. Maybe people will listen, but if I say it, who cares what I say? No one believes me. Uh, That's why religion is so prominent, and which I think, you know, is a negative thing, but that's my humble opinion. But look at religion. I mean, you've got cult-like leaders that are telling people what to believe, and it's just easier for people to believe something. Well, I don't know why. When it comes from someone else, you know, who claims to be either from another planet, from a higher dimension, or, you know, an angel or what have you. I'm not sure what the mechanism is in our brains that, you know, wants that can believe that more readily than coming from someone, say, in the scientific community, or even just someone that you know, that that you know really well, that you trust and you know they're intelligent. And they say the same thing to you, and you just totally discount it. I don't know why that is. I've thought a lot about this topic, and what I keep coming to is that all humans are children. Basically, like children, we are completely self-obsessed. We think we know everything, but yet we need to have a parent figure to look up to because they will protect us. They will make the decisions for us that are in our best interest, even if we don't want to consciously acknowledge that. You know, kids say, my parents so mean to me. Yeah, but at the same time, the kid knows the parent's doing the right thing for them ultimately. Yeah. And it's like there's this sense of, you know, I can't be wrong. I have to always be right. And it's what I say it is, and it's what I want, and it's this, it's like we are stuck forever in this position of thinking and reacting to the world like children because it's easier because in essence I mean every adult human ultimately underneath of all the psychological layers of junk they build up over their lives are always in essence really guided by their childhood experiences really always trying to get back to that child state right carrying a lot of baggage from their childhood and yeah Yeah, you know, it fascinates me. Maybe I'll write a book on it, but I just, I'm really fascinated by belief. You know, what drives it? What makes it just such a prominent force in in our lives? It's easy. You You can believe anything. To know something, to understand it, requires significant effort. Hard and work, pe- I was going to say. It's the absolutely way out. But it's so unfulfilling. I mean, people are like zombies. I call them the walking dead. Yeah. You know, they just believe everything that they hear. They follow everything that they hear. They don't question authority. They don't even question themselves. I find that fascinating. Because if you can break through that, even small increments, you know, life could be so much better. What are you thinking, people? <laughs> Very fascinated by that. Oh, absolutely. It's it's the same reason that people have become addicted to instant gratification mechanisms, be, be they, you know, in any realm. Take your pick. If, oh. if, if someone can press a button and get a solution... They would rather do that than understand the mechanisms that produce a solution. They don't, because everybody is so overwhelmed. Oh, my God, I have my lifestyle to maintain. I have my kids to bring up. I have to make a living. I have my mortgage payments. I have insurance. I have my taxes. This endless array of stuff that humans a thousand or two thousand years ago 
basically had just a couple of concerns. I have to stay alive. I have to stay alive. <laughs> stay alive, and I gotta stay alive. And I gotta stay alive. And and and. This morning, I gotta stay alive again. <laughs> yeah, and at nighttime, there's no television, you know. So I have to go out and I have to look at the sky every night. And there's yeah. no ambient light to destroy the sky. I mean, how many people in today's technological society have never seen the Milky Way in the sky? I know. Or can identify a constellation or even know what they are. Mm-hmm. I live in suburbia. You know, it's awful. It's dulling to your mind. I mean, I have to, to struggle, you know, especially for my son, because I grew up surrounded by nature and I was always very aware of it. And I made sure that I stayed that way. But now I see how, you know, it's it's easy for him to slip into watching TV or doing video games or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when you get outside, there's really not much to look at but other people's houses. And it's like now you have to make an effort to connect with that deeper level. You know, whereas a long time ago, it was there and they had to deal with it. And right. now what's happening is people have gotten so dulled. They're, they just have no rough edges at all. And, you know, my dad and I, my dad's a geophysicist, we're writing a book about supervolcanoes, and one of the things we're exploring is the difference between a supervolcano occurring 75,000 years ago and today. We really believe that it would be easier for people to survive back then than it would today, because today we have absolutely no idea how to live off the land or how to take care of ourselves. It's all done for us. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that fascinates me, too. And yet I have to admit that I've become a victim of checking email and, you know, my cell phone's always on. I haven't bought one of those BlackBerry things, and I refuse to. (laughs) But you do. You get sucked in. And it's it's almost as if you either keep up, you know, or you fall behind. And it would be nice to go run off and live in the country somewhere. And maybe someday we'll do it. But, yeah, I can see how people can easily get sucked in. And then once you're sucked in, it's hard to get back to that. You know, wanting to go outside and look up at the stars and, and get that feeling of awe that yeah. you might have had as a child. Well, now, of course, we have big screen TVs. We have 50-inch plasmas. We have 60-inch projection TVs. We have high-definition TV. So mm-hmm. it doesn't give us a better mirror of reality. It hides us from reality if it, you want to look yeah, at it objectively. It, exactly. It makes the illusion bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, right. You don't have to go to the movie theater anymore and share the experience of enjoying a show with other people. You could do it in your own home. Of course, you don't have the crowd with you. You just have yourself and your significant other and maybe your kids. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney and Marie Jones, three of us in one virtual room. If you want to get in touch with us, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com. Go to our website, thepowercast.com, not the powercast. Okay, we had a letter saying that it's hard to understand the difference between Paracast and Powercast, P-O-W-E-R. Now, I'll tell you the difference is Powercast, that domain is owned by somebody else. I tried to get it, by the way, but it's owned by somebody else. We have discussion forums at theparacast.com, and you can download past episodes. Marie's author of this book, Science, How the Discoveries of Quantum Physics and New Science May Explain the Existence of Paranormal Phenomena. Before we go into our final session, Marie, give our listeners a bit of an overview about the book. You know, the book, it, 
it's divided into three sections, and this is probably the easiest way to explain it. What I do is I sort of present some basic information about the paranormal, UFOs, ghosts, poltergeists, Bermuda Triangle, ESP, you name it. And then I talk about some basics of quantum and theoretical physics. And then in the third part of the book, I bring them together. I show some of the links and connections that I found and that other researchers have found and how they apply to, you know, what I talked about in the first section, the paranormal. But then I introduce the concept of human consciousness and the power of the observer to affect all of the other stuff. I mean, everything that we call reality is affected by our power of observation and our consciousness and how that sort of leads into some metaphysical ideas of, you know, whether or not we're creating our own reality or is it already there and we're just perceiving a holographic illusion from somewhere. So the, the book gets into a lot of different areas. And the book's available at all the usual offenders. All the usual, yeah, brick and mortar, online, you know, if you don't like to go out and into a real bookstore <laughs> and have a cup of coffee, uh, you can get it online. <laughs> I'd rather go get a cup of coffee. The problem is now I feel compelled to bring my laptop there so I can connect to the free Wi-Fi. There you go. So no, you boy. see, there's no hope see, for me. We have become so isolated. <laughs> and yet at the quantum level, we are all connected. Mm. So, Maria, I'm, I'm curious. What's the most, in your world, what's the most interesting realm of paranormal research, the one that has the greatest mysteries, and you're looking at all of them? Which one really speaks to you? You know what? For some reason, even though I mean, UFOs and ghosts to me are very big and fantastical and you can get real sensationalistic with them, to me things like remote viewing and ESP, the, the more basic older stuff because that more than anything is linked to the most fundamental message that I found doing this research and that is that at the quantum level, everything is connected. It's like a web. Every particle, everything, matter, it's all connected and what we do to one affects everything else and you know the fact that particles can communicate with each other over huge distances to me means that our minds and our consciousness consciousnesses are also linked and I think that that's what we start needing, needing to look at if we're all connected then you know why the heck are we destroying our planet why are we killing each other why are we abusing children that's totally off the topic but yet at the same time it's fundamental to it if we're being told that at the quantum level we're all a part of one big thing, why do we treat each other so badly? You know, why do we treat the web as if it's breakable and big deal, you know? So some people would say that humans do the things they do because this is what the universe is. The universe is basically a construct trying to understand itself, and it will use any mechanisms it needs to arrive at that understanding. Maybe there is some design to this. I'm not talking about intelligent design and that whole notion of, well, I won't even go into it because I think it's just all silly. But that said, um, the universe itself as a whole doesn't seem accidental. There's a, there's a symmetry and a synergy to these energies that seems to indicate some sense of purpose. And perhaps we are simply not capable enough intellectually or spiritually at this point in our evolution to truly understand Maybe not the mechanisms, but the meaning and Absolutely. the goal of this. Absolutely. But I think it's what we should be striving towards at some level. I mean, I know there are people out there that, you know, that their fundamental survival is at stake, people living in poverty. But I think that if we as a species can try to, to evolve a little bit more to this level of understanding, you know, we're going to make huge 
improvements in the quality of life for everybody who can't sink up to that level or, or isn't capable of it. And we're doing a disservice by just denying it, throwing it away, tossing it aside, or, you know, or just being so focused on the trivialities of life that we never get to the deeper stuff. Or we do when we're on our deathbed, you know, and then it's too late. Mm-hmm. Then you feel you want to make amends just in case somebody's on the other side who's going to judge you. So it might be self-serving even then. Well, it could be, but you know, since since doing this book, I have found myself becoming more and more forgiving of inconsiderate people. I mean, I still, you know, want to slap them upside the head the first time they do something. <laughs> I'm Italian. I'm from New York. Come on. But then I, you know, then I feel like, wait a minute. You know what? If we are all connected, there is a reason why that person is acting like an idiot. And if I can try to understand on that deeper level, you know, maybe they just got some awful news, then it's that kind of thinking. And you know what? It's not that hard to do. It really doesn't take as much effort as I think people think it does. But, you know, until we get a a tipping point of enough people that are willing to think a little deeper, we're never going to, you know, we're never going to end wars or poverty or anything like that. Yeah. Is there a class being taught at the high school level called empathy? No. Hey, listen, they don't even teach you how to balance a checkbook. You know, they're teaching stuff that you're never going to use. They need to be teaching you how to be a good human being. And they need to be teaching you, you know, how to be a functioning human being. They'd much rather teach you how to be a good consumer. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's absolutely. too late for me at this point. <laughs> Are you a lost cause? <laughs> I don't know. I would have to ask his wife. Yeah, you're never, nobody's ever a lost well, cause. I think she thinks I am, but she has that vague hope that I might still have something there that she can deal with after 30 years. She sees your potential. <laughs> She says, for heaven's sake, realize it already. This is ridiculous. Do I have to wait another 30 years for you to realize your potential? Are you going to be a late bloomer? Is that what it is? (laughs) If it gets any later, I'm in trouble. Gene, put your bloomers away. We don't want to see them. We won't get into that. I think we're approaching something. So let me ask you kind of a a ridiculous question or not. And that is, okay, we're talking about these developments in science, about our spiritual problems. What do you think might be generating say UFO, since we're talking about possible UFO propulsion systems and their relationship to quantum physics and all that. So do you think the UFOs represent space people, represent our spiritual brothers, represent something from the future, another dimension? What? You know, it seems mm. like when you look at all the different types of sightings that are out there, that there might, it might be a blend. I mean, obviously, some of them look like, you know, the, the nuts and bolts come from another planet. They're watching us, checking us out. But at the same time, you hear a lot of cases that sound like they might be related to our our consciousness, that we might be generating them, that we might have something to do with their appearance. And then there are also the the ones that I believe are interdimensional, things that just sort of, you know, zip in and out of focus and people will report things that they see one second and then it just vanishes. It doesn't fly off into the distance and it just literally snaps out of view. It disappears that quickly. And, you know, I think about all these ideas of alternate dimensions and parallel universes and maybe what we're seeing is a little bit of crosstalk between universes or dimensions. So I feel like it's a little bit of each. It's also, you know, people obviously misidentifying military prototypes and even sometimes conventional aircraft. I'm not sure about the space brothers that are here for our higher good. I don't think there's any proof of that. If there were, well, why the heck aren't they doing anything for us, you know? I don't have any problem with advanced life somewhere else in the universe or in another universe doing a flyby. 
you know, checking us out. You know, Michio Kaku, whose work I love, theoretical physicist who wrote Parallel Worlds and Hyperspace, two of my favorite books on this subject matter, you know, he believes that it is possible. We should be thinking not in terms of civilizations, maybe 100,000 years advanced, but maybe a million. Now, would they be that interested in us that they'd want to land and talk? No, but they might want to come check it out, see what's going on on planet Earth. It's my theory that the Earth is essentially an entertainment program for the rest of the galaxy. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's like their holodeck. No, no, we are the ultimate reality sitcom. Basically, oh, that's, that's it's a real life. There you go. Is there an idea about this that's already floating around out there? Because I've always thought this. I always thought, no, why else? I'm going to go after this discussion. I'm going to write that down and submit it to a producer and see if I can sell a reality. Hey, 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 you <laughs> better cut us in, lady. Hey, wait a minute. Yeah, and also, by the way, if you need special effects, David is a perfectly well, capable, well, well, brilliant well, special well, effects well, expert. Well, the other thing about this is that I already own a domain name called Yes, the Earth Show. So I'm one step ahead of you. Sorry. Okay. okay. I, I concede. <laughs> we must be incredibly entertaining. I mean, look at all the stuff that we do. Oh man. I don't see why an advanced civilization would need to to contact us. What are we gonna? We're like when we go to the museum when you're kids and you look at all the dioramas and stuff. You know, yeah. that's what we're like. We're hmm. museum display. Well, I'll tell you what. That's where we have to end it. Thank you very much, Marie Jones, author of Science. How new discoveries in quantum physics and new science may explain the existence of paranormal phenomena. And it's available at your favorite bookseller. And it's an easy read. It's not a long book, but it's a very fascinating book. Marie, thank you so much for joining us on the Powercast. Thank you for having me. This has been too much fun. (laughs) (laughs) The Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.